Ecclesiastes 4 in your Bibles. Verses 7 through 12. God is in control of the problem of greed. Greed and selfishness at the expense of relationships. It's really the warning. The concept of relationships will will expand beyond that this morning, but that's the context. There are many problems with man. We face many struggles, many trials, many tribulations. We've talked about many already. We've talked about oppression. We've talked about um, corruption. We've talked about death. We've talked about inordinate ambition last week. Evil seems to fly in the face of God being in control of God's design. There's so many things that are outside of God's desire in the world, and yet God is still in control. That's what we've seen week after week after week. This week we talk about the man that is full of greed, the man that is full of desire to obtain, and what he's willing to give up in order to obtain the material things of this world. What man is seeking is satisfaction under the sun. Lasting satisfaction. And yet Solomon says it's all vanity. It lacks that which is necessary to provide lasting satisfaction. So today we speak of the desire for things at the expense of everything else. The desire for that which we want at the expense of that which we need. The desire of that which is material at the expense of that which is spiritual. And we will find in this topic the same illusion that has accompanied every natural human desire thus far. That while our heart draws us strongly towards certain actions and desires, seeking to convince us that they will give us satisfaction, they do not. And indeed, they cannot. And that is the theme that we've seen throughout the book, and that will run through this morning's portion as well. We begin in verses 7 and 8 of Ecclesiastes 4, where the Bible tells us this. Then I returned and saw, and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother. Yet there is no end of all his labor, neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor? And bereave my soul of good. This is also vanity. Yea, it is a sore travail. We find a lonely man. Solomon looks under the sun. That concept of under the sun, meaning he's considering life outside of God's sovereignty. He's considering life as it's lived outside of a pursuit of the Lord. And what he sees is a man who is alone. A man who is without companionship. He describes him as having neither child nor brother. The idea is not necessarily that he has no blood relations. The idea is not necessarily that he has no children, that he has no siblings. Certainly we know that at least at some point he had parents. But the idea is that within the context of the world that he lives, he is lonely. He has no one. He regards no one. He doesn't regard his friends, his children, his family, uh, his, his, his parents. He, he's a lonely man. He describes him instead as living for one thing, and that is labor. And take careful note that this is not a lazy man. This is not a lazy man. We've talked over, uh, uh, in a couple of contexts, once last week, once a couple weeks earlier, about the idea of entitlement, right? And those people that feel entitled and that they live off of the, the, the labor of others. This is not that man. This is a man that works hard. This is not a lazy man. He's not one that expects others to take care of him. He's not one that expects life to be handed to him. He is a man who works hard for what he has. His problem is not laziness, but his problem is on the other end. He has poured himself into his work at the expense of everything else. He has a priority problem. He is consumed with work at the expense of relationships, at the expense of both spiritual and physical relationships. He's the man who has the goal. I'm going to be wealthy. We might say today, I'm going to be a millionaire. And so he sets aside everything else in his pursuit of his goal. And he tells himself that once he's hit that goal, then he can relax, right? I'm going to hit my goal and then I can relax. I'm going to hit that number and then I can relax. I'm going to hit that that threshold and then that'll be it. I'm going to hit that and, and, and then I'll have it. I'm going to hit that threshold and then I can spend time with my family. 
I'm going to hit that threshold and then I can love my wife. I'm going to uh, hit that threshold and then I can foster relationships. But then when he gets there, it's not enough. He hits his million and he says, yeah, but, but a million is not what it used to be, so now I need another million. And he begins to pursue that next million. And along the way, he's been telling himself all along that there's coming a day when he'll hit his goal and then he can focus on those other things that he thinks he should. And this man is lonely. Because he's constantly working. He's constantly laboring. And one day, it seems, this man comes to his senses from these two verses. And he says in verse verses 7 and 8, Specifically verse 8. For whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? He comes to a point where he says, you know, I've sacrificed my life. I've worked hard. I've labored. And what have I labored for? For whom have I labored? For what have I sacrificed myself? For what have I bereaved my soul? For stuff? Stuff is pretty lonely if you don't have anyone to share it with, isn't it? Wealth is pretty useless if you don't have anyone to spend it upon. He sees one day that he has bereaved, that word means to deprive or to strip away, that he has deprived his soul of good for the sake of labor, for the sake of gain. His ambition was empty. One day he'll awake, having everything his heart sought after, and realize that none of it was what his soul truly wanted. One day he'll awake, having poured all, all, all of himself into his labors, and then realize that all of that labor, that all of that gain, is empty because he has no one to share it with. In his labor is emptiness, for in pursuing his riches he has given up that which truly matters. Solomon considers the plight of this greedy man, this ambitious man, this man who is busy laboring. He's busy putting himself into uh, the gaining of material at the expense of relationships. And he says this is also vanity. That this lacks that which is necessary to provide lasting satisfaction. That this is sore travail. That it is an unpleasant effort which does not lead to a desirable end. Solomon speaks of the one who is alone. And I can't help but wonder here. If Solomon is actually thinking about himself. I can't help but wonder. We know that Solomon lived several years in rebellion. He lived several years where, the, where he had um, uh, his heart had wandered from the Lord because of the, <laughs> the manifold number of wives that had drawn his heart away from the Lord. And as we consider this, and we know that he spent those years in building, and he spent those years in ambition, maybe it is that he's looking at himself, and he sees his children... And his wife, or wives as the case may be. And he sees his friends of years gone by. And he looks at all of them and he realizes that he doesn't really know them. That in all of these years of labor and of throwing himself into that which he thought would satisfy. If I can just build that next monument. If I can just earn that next dollar. If I can just find that next collectible. If I can just uh, accomplish that next benchmark. If I can just become that good at, at, at my, my, my career path or that good at my skill set. Then, then I can slow down. Then I can finally settle. And by the time he slowed down, by the time he woke up, he'd missed it. He'd lost his children. He didn't know his family. I wonder if it's not Solomon. As he observes his wife and children and his people and his counselors and realizes that he doesn't really know them because he spent all of his ambition in the wrong places. And so Solomon considers this lonely man. And we'll come back to this lonely man in our application today. But as he considers this lonely man... It leads him to another set of principles. It leads him to a, another thought. And that is about relationships. And so he says this in verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth. For he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? 
And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The claim Solomon makes in the verses is found in that first phrase. Two are better than one. The idea is that a man needs companionship. And having a companion in almost any context is better than being alone. Now we often use these verses to speak of marriage. But really, it goes well beyond marriage as you consider the context. Solomon lists his defense of this statement in the verses that follow. He says, first, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Because when a man works, he has something to work for, someone to work for. Because when a man labors, he has someone with which to share the fruit of his labor. And you all can experience this. You all have experienced this before. Have you ever cooked a meal for yourself and it's been really good? And you thought, wow, I wish that so-and-so was here to taste this, because this really worked out well. When you cook alone, you kind of lose the motivation to actually cook stuff, right? Because it's like, well, who am I cooking for? Just for me. Okay, I'll just put something into me. Food is fuel. But when you've got someone else to cook for, and, and, and you, 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 you put the time and the effort into making it good so that when they take that bite and they say, wow, that's really good. And you know that you bless them. And it's like that in, in, in so many different areas of life where something that is, is perhaps pleasant in itself becomes so much more pleasant when there's someone for which to do it. Solomon considers this idea, this concept that two are better than one. And he says, first, because there's a good reward for their labor. A husband works hard to make money, but what good is that money in the bank? And at some point, it even becomes kind of meh, just to spend a bunch of money on yourself. But when you have a wife, children for which to give good things, there's an extra layer of joy there. That a father works hard to bless his children. That a husband works hard to bless his wife. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Solomon then elaborates, saying that even in the labor itself, two are better than one. See, it's not just that two are better than one because then you have a reward for your labor. You can share it. But two are better than one because when one falls, the other can lift him up. He says, but woe unto the man that's alone when he falls because there's no one to help him. Just as we might relate to the concept of laboring to bless someone else, we can also relate to the concept of laboring with someone and the the joy and the fellowship or the safety that is found in that. Whether it be shopping, building, or even cleaning, have you ever noticed that those activities tend to be more enjoyable when you do it with someone? That cleaning goes a lot better when you can do it with someone. That working on your car in the garage is a lot more enjoyable when there's someone else there. And not only is it more enjoyable, but I tell you when I'm working on my car, it's really nice to have someone to bounce an idea off of. Or when I'm working on, my, my, my dad and I work pretty well together, and, and there's many a project where we're working and then one of us will look up and say, hey, we need to rethink this. And then we'll talk about it and realize that if, if we had continued down the path we had planned to continue, it would not have gone well for us. And there's a mutual protection there, right? There's also a protection in other avenues of, of labor. You know, I won't get up on the roof if I'm home alone. It's just not wise. I won't go out and use the chainsaw if my wife doesn't know I'm going out to use the chainsaw and isn't generally around. Because there's safety in having somebody else there in case I decide to Chop my leg off or something, right? So there's, there's safety. Now, these aren't hard and fast rules, but there's safety. There's safety in numbers. Two are better than one because if one falls, the other one can pick him up. But woe unto the man that falls alone. Solomon then reminds us that when two lie together, they have heat, but one has no heat when he is alone. The conservation of body heat is the idea here. In very cold situations, shared body heat between two bodies can mean the difference between life and death. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those documentaries on um, military training. But in Navy SEALs training, they'll send the SEALs out into the water. And they all have to 
handle being out in that water for, for an extended period of time. And they tell them that you have to huddle together to conserve the body heat, to keep the body heat, to keep one another warm. you got to work together to keep your bodies warm. This is the idea here. Look, each individual person is their own little heat factory, right? But if you take two people and you put them together, the capacity to share heat is multiplied. There's a mutual benefit whereby each body benefits from the warmth of the other so that two people can be much warmer together than they can be individually. And this is the idea. This is the concept. Two are better than one. Two are better than one because you have fruit for your labor. Two are better than one because there's protection. Two are better than one because there's greater efficiency. Solomon then considers uh, personal protection. That an enemy who might prevail against one can be overcome by two. That whereas a one-on-one battle, the stronger enemy might win, if you have two, those two might be able to overcome that one. So two is better than one. Solomon then concludes his thoughts upon this matter by declaring, oh, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Two is good, whereas one man would mean a loss in the battle. Two men might mean overcoming. Three men means great strength. And he appeals into the picture of a rope here. He says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Unlike a string or a line or a thread, what we would call a cord, a rope is twisted or braided lengths, which due to it being multiple cords stranded together, exhibit significantly greater strength. And the idea is this. You have a line and a certain line has a certain amount of strength. If you take two lines and you twist them together, you have increased the strength of that twisted line beyond that which either of the two could do separately. If you take three lines and you twist them or you braid them together, then it becomes significantly greater in strength than the three individual or even the two twisted lines. What Solomon is teaching here, and by the way, if you if you buy a rope today, much rope is... At least three twisted pairs. It's because it's strong. It's because it adds integrity. And he's teaching companionship. Strength in numbers, accountability, the ability to be more and to accomplish more together than by yourself. That the strength of a man who has support is greater than the strength of a man who stands alone. Now, we've broken Solomon's words into two distinct sections. We, we talked about the loneliness, and then we talked about companionship. And we're going to do the same in our application today. We're first going to consider this concept of loneliness and ambition and greed, and then we're going to con- consider the concept of companionship and fellowship as we apply. And so the first thing I would like us to understand this morning is that labor and material things are divine means but not divine ends. Labor and material things are divine means but not a divine end. We are focusing this series on lasting satisfaction, that which is necessary to bring about lasting satisfaction. And from Solomon's words, we need to understand the danger of making things an end in itself. Please understand this danger. We live in an extremely materialistic age. We live in an age where we have stuff. I mean, we have a lot of stuff. I'm not just saying we, my family, but this country is just wealthy. We've talked before about the fact that the middle class of this country is wealthier than the wealthy class of a vast majority of other countries. We are a blessed country. But with that comes this tendency. And this tendency is to amass. And this tendency is to pursue stuff. All throughout scriptures, we can find hard work commended. 
Now, I'm not talking about just gaining stuff. I'm talking about hard work. That's what we're talking about today. Hard work is a good thing. And the Bible talks about it. We covered some verses last week. I'm going to cover many of them again today. Last week, we covered them from the idea of you need to work. This week, we're going to cover them from the idea of it's right and good. And God commends work. That it's not wrong to work. Last week, it's good to work. This week, it's not wrong to work. Uh, Proverbs 13, 11. Wealth gotten by vanity shall be diminished, but he that gathereth by labor shall increase. It's a good thing to labor. And by labor you increase. Labor is a good and a virtual and a profitable thing. Virtuous and profitable thing. Proverbs 14, 23. In all labor there is profit. But the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury. That word meaning poverty. The Bible speaks very favorably upon labor, very favorably upon work. God desires man to work and to work hard. He has designed man to have great satisfaction in labor. And there is satisfaction in labor, isn't there? There's satisfaction in work. There's satisfaction in a job well done. Men, if you've ever uh, put in a hard days of work, you get to the end of that day, you're tired, but you know there's a satisfaction there, isn't there? There's a satisfaction that you worked hard. And that you got something accomplished. But even more so, all men who have worked, they understand that it's not just the end of a thing. It's not just the fact that something got accomplished, but the work itself. There's something satisfying in it. That work is a blessing from the Lord. We read it last week. We'll read it again. Solomon says to uh, to his readers, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, no overseer or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth, as one that traveleth, excuse me, and thy want as an armed man. Solomon calls men to go to the ant, to consider the life of the ant. The ant labors all day of his own initiative, providing food for the harvest. Solomon says that there is wisdom in initiative and should become the model for us as followers of the Lord. That laziness is a sin and that initiative and work ethic are wisdom. We're familiar with the seriousness of the issue. Again, we mentioned it last week. Let's mention it this week. Second Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busy bodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. We're called to labor as, and this is, this is where we're going with this. You got all these verses last week, but as we talked about them last week, we talked about, uh, the importance of, 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 of not being entitled and lazy. This week we're talking about the virtue of work and we're establishing first of all the fact that yes, God wants us to work. Yes, God wants us to work. But don't be fooled by that. Don't think that because God wants you to work that God wants your life to be work. There's a difference. Living on the fruit of our own labor is provided for by the good hand of God. This is a good thing. Initiative is important. Work ethic is important. These are models of Christian obedience. But labor is intended by God to be a means of provision and sustenance, not the end in and of itself. And what is the end of labor? Well, 2 Thessalonians 3.12 here tells us this, that you may eat your own bread. You labor to eat your own bread. You labor to provide for yourself and those under your care. This is right. This is good. This is why we work. In Ephesians chapter 4, we covered this verse last week as well, verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. Why? That he may have to give to him that needeth. So Paul says that you labor, first uh, in Second Thessalonians, you labor so that you can eat your own bread. He says in Ephesians 4, you labor so that you can have to give to those that need. So there are two particular reasons that Paul says we earn. We earn to live and we earn to give. You earn to live and you earn to give. And if you're missing either of these, you're missing God's purpose in labor. So we see through these that labor is virtuous. And it is a divine means. 
But we need to also consider what the Bible teaches us about the material things of this world. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 verse 17, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Paul does not tell Timothy to call wealthy men to reject their wealth, does he? He does not say that wealth is bad. But he does call upon those who have material prosperity to understand that their goods are gifts from God, that they are not to be an end in and of themselves, but they are rather to be a means by which to find in this life enjoyment. Gifts from God. 1 Corinthians 7.31 And they that use this world as not abusing this world for the fashion of this world will pass away. Paul is speaking to the church here, and I know we're not, we're jumping into a context, but Paul says, in this life, you need to charge the church, the church, you need to be charged, that you would, if you are using this world, the things of this world, not abuse that, knowing that those things will pass away, knowing that those things are here for a while, but then one day they will burn up. And so Jesus would exhort in Matthew 6, Verses 19 to 21, Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourself treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And this is the problem with the lonely man. The lonely man has made labor his treasure has made labor his heart. He has poured himself into the things of this life at the expense of things which matter so much more. He has sought for satisfaction in going to work and in coming home and in going to work and in coming home rather than what is at work or what is at home. And Jesus said, our priority needs to be on the things above. We often, when we consider that, we, we would consider the difference between sin and not sin. We would consider the difference between um, the things that we want to do on any given day and the things that God would have us to do. It's the difference between the material and the spiritual. But, but, but can we see where this is going with the lonely man? Maybe seeking those things which are above is God simply wanting him to raise his kids instead of being at work all the time. Maybe seeking those things which are above is God wanting him to put priority into his spiritual life instead of being at work all the time. And see, we men in particular, but women too, we can take something good, such as work, such as labor, such as provision, and we can make it an imbalance, can't we? To where we spend our time laboring at the expense of that which is which truly matters and we are able to justify this perhaps far more than not working right for not not working that's hard to justify but we can we can justify working and we can say hey I'm working I'm laboring I'm I'm providing for my family and yet you're doing it far more than you need to and at the expense of your family at the expense of the spiritual 1 Timothy 6 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows." We are called here in in, uh, 1 Timothy to godliness with contentment. Notice the Bible doesn't say they which are rich fall into temptation and a snare, does it? It says they which will be rich. They who pursue with all of their might the physical things on this earth. They who pursue with all of their might that which is material, that which is earthly, that which uh, labor provides. Notice the Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. 
The Bible says, the love of money is the root of all evil. They who will put money on a pedestal and pursue it at the expense of other things. And so we have the lonely man who has no one with which to share his goods because he has poured all of his life into labor. And he gets to the end and he says, what have I done? Why have I worked so hard? Who do I have to share this with? I have lost everybody that I could possibly share all of this good with. So he says, I bereaved my soul for nothing. I deprived myself of that which truly matters for the sake of that which doesn't. We've already read verse 17 of 1 Timothy 6. I'm going to do it again as I give you a little more context. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. Charge them which are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. But then he continues that they do good that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. So Paul says, tell those that are wealthy that if they're going to lay anything in store, that if they're really going to save up, have them save up for heaven. Now, I'm not telling you don't save money. Right? This, isn't a, this is not a, a message to tell you not to have a bank account and not to save money and not to, not to, to have anything uh, for the future. I'm not saying that. Nor is the Bible. But what the Bible is saying is this. The man who labors at the expense, the man who pours into the material at the expense of the spiritual, at the expense of the relational, is a man who might just one day wake up and say, I've poured, all, I've poured myself into all of this and I've lost that which is more important. I've given it up. And so we see that labor and material things are, are intended to be a divine means. They're a means by which we live. They're not an ends in and of themselves. He spoke of the man who had this confused. The man who has chosen to work so much in the name of his family that he's given up his family. Who pursued his career and so failed to love his wife. Who pursued his career and so failed to raise his children. Speaking to the man who has chosen to pursue the material success at the expense of God's commands. That God commands us to fellowship among one another. It's the man who believes that his wealth is worth more than the relationships which God has given to him. And the question is this. Do we think that if we chose to elevate the things which God elevates, that God can take care of the rest? If we choose to elevate the priority of doing as God has asked us to do, teaching our children, loving our wife, assembling among the believers, do we think God can take care of the rest? Solomon saw a man whose perspective was off. A man who saw labor, not just as a means to life, but literally poured himself into labor as the end of his life. As the point of his life. And he became a lonely man for whom his labor really had no value. And may I just make note that in this country, this is not just a temptation on the wealthy. There's perhaps a man or two under the sound of my voice who, though you aren't a wealthy man, you spent far too much time in your labors at the expense of that which truly matters. Your mind is constantly on money and things, craving for them or thinking you need more, and in doing so you've sacrificed the better part. And Jesus has warned us that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I'd like to make two sub-points to this before we leave it. First, thinking that God needs you to physically provide for you is misguided. 99 times out of 100, the manner in which God chooses to provide for His people is through their initiative and work ethic. But while this is the case, it does not follow that our needs rest upon our own shoulders. Back to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said this in verse 25 and following. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat 
and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, neither gather, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Clothing. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. God has designed you to live through labor, but he has not designed you to live for labor. That a man provide for his household while his wife keep the house, according to Titus 2, that's what God expects. But never mistake the means of provision with its source. By God's design, God does not want us to waste our worry fretting over provision that is in his hand. If God clothes the grass of the field, if God can feed the birds of the air, then he can take care of you if you will trust him to do it. And can a man say that he's really trusting the Lord to provide and seeking first the kingdom of God when he has shunned that which God has commanded him to take care of with his family and his friends and his fellowship and his church and whatever else in order to make money? And that's the man that Solomon considered in Ecclesiastes, isn't it? The man who labored hard But he's alone, having neither child nor brother. There's no end to all his labor. His eye is not satisfied with riches. And he fails to consider, who do I labor for? Why do I bereave my soul of good? Solomon says it's vanity. He says it's vexation of spirit. Second sub-point. Pursuing the material at the expense of the spiritual is misguided. Fathers and husbands, God has called for you to love your wife, Ephesians 5.25, to raise your children, Ephesians 6.4. If your pursuit of material gain and labor means you neglect your family, you are pursuing the material at the expense of the spiritual, and you're misguided in your efforts. Believers, God has called you to be a part of the body of Christ, serving and fellowshipping one with another, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. If your pursuit of material gain and labor means that you must neglect your church body, you are pursuing the material at the expense of the spiritual, and you're misguided in your efforts. There is an account which we will explore in just a few weeks in Luke. Uh, that's our evening series. I'll be preaching a two-parter next week, so we'll have a morning and an evening in Luke next week. It'll break up Ecclesiastes a little bit for us too, which I think will be beneficial. But in Luke 10, Jesus is teaching, and Martha is busy about the work. She is encumbered with much serving, and Mary is where? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, right? And Martha objects to this, and she says, Jesus, uh, here I am working hard, and Mary's not helping me. Command her to help me. And Jesus responds this way in Luke 10, verses 41 and 42. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. It's not that Martha was doing anything wrong. Men, it's not that you're doing anything wrong when you labor. Women, it's not that you're doing anything wrong when you work hard. This is not a bad thing. This is not wrong. But you know, Jesus says, Martha, it's not bad that you're laboring, but are you where you need to be right now? Labor is not a bad thing, but are you where you need to be now? Is this really where you need to be? Maybe there's a time to do that later. Maybe you could do that later, and right now, while Jesus is here, you should be sitting at his feet too. It's an unfortunate reality that we, even we who are God's people, be it for greed or selfishness or, or, or simply all we know or whatever it might be, 
We give up the spiritual for the sake of the material. We labor for gain when we ought to be committing ourselves to the care of God so that we can take care of the spiritual things that God has asked us to take care of. And this leads us to our second consideration this morning. Godly relationships are a gift from God to benefit man. We are called to seek them out and to provide them to others. As Solomon considers relationships in this passage, we walk through it, he considered several advantages. The first of these is fellowship. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. There is fellowship among the believers. There is a joy in fellowship. Among like-blinded believers, there's a joy that's not found in many other contexts of life. In fact, we read in Psalm 133, verse 1, a song of degrees of David, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. When two are agreed, they walk together. And there's mutual fellowship and delight and joy. If you've ever walked away from a time of fellowship among like-minded believers, truly refreshed and encouraged, you have experienced this pleasure. I tell you, two weeks ago, Resurrection Sunday, had a little group that stayed here to have, have a meal together. And my wife and I, at the end of that day, and it wasn't just at the meal, it was, it was the service, evening service, the whole thing. At the end of that day, my wife and I could not remember a better time of fellowship we'd had since we'd been up here. We just had a great day. It was refreshing. It was joyful. If you've ever been able to bless someone you love as an extension of your understanding of their needs, you've experienced this reward. Look, this is, this is important stuff. This is important stuff. Better, two are better than one. Fellowship is important. If you're coming and you're sitting and you're listening and you're leaving and you're not fellowshipping among this group, you're missing out on something. Something big, something important. God has designed us to fellowship. He wants us to fellowship. Two are better than one. And so fellowship is the first blessing of godly relationships. Second, accountability. Verse 10, for if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Accountability is something that is becoming nearly unheard of in the church today. People don't want this anymore. They don't want accountability. That man that will admit his weakness and then lay those weaknesses before a brother in Christ to help him. Doesn't mean you have to air your laundry before the whole of the church. But you get accountability. You get someone to help you up when you fall. That a man will partner with another so that when he falls, he will be picked up. Instead of accountability, we in the church have gone in a different direction. They say, well, accountability is a vulnerable thing, so I'm just going to pretend like I never fall. Right? That's what we do instead. We just put on the veneer. And we come to church and people say, hey, how are you doing? And you say, great. And you just leave out all that stuff that you struggled with this week. Because that would mean we'd have to make ourselves vulnerable to someone. That means they may think less of us. So we just pretend like we never fall. And so when we fall, we stay down. We pretend like we're doing fine. We put on the fine face. We live in that hypocrisy. And we just lay on the floor and say, yep, I'm fine. Because we don't want... To tell anyone that we've fallen. But if we're partners together in this life, if we have others who love us and who will labor with us, then when we fall, someone will be there to lift us up. And this is what Galatians tells us to do in the church, right? Galatians 6.1 Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, judge that man until he leaves. Right? Don't think that's what it says. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, tell that man not to come back until he figures himself out. Rather, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Accountability, ideally, helps each man stay free from sin. But in those times when we fall, when we struggle, when we falter, when we have needs, if he's alone, there will be no one to help him up. But on the contrary, when a man or woman falls spiritually in the church, the church is called to restore them, to help them up. And then it goes on to say in Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens. The third benefit 
of fellowship. Uh, third, excuse me, benefit of godly relationships. Fellowship, accountability. Third, mutual strength. Verse 11 says, if two lie together, they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? Among godly relationships, there is mutual strength. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen: Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Two men who love the Lord when they fellowship together can provide each other perspective in order that both may become better. This is why times of Christian interaction are so very important. Because in these times, there is great reward for the labor. Likewise, we know that many hands make light work. This is not a biblical statement, but it's a principle that we find in Scripture. Ephesians 4.16 speaks of the church body as many members, and it says this, From whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. How does the body grow? It grows as each joint does its part. It's not that there's some superpower joint that pulls all the other joints along and drags them through the dirt. You're coming with me. No, it's that each joint supplies its portion and we're all made stronger by the individual strengths of each one. By the individual strengths of each believer, which are not the same, by the way, the church is made stronger. And so your pastor has some strengths, and you have some strengths, and your pastor's strengths are not your strengths, and your pastor's weaknesses are not your weaknesses. So what if, in the times of your pastor's weaknesses, you were there to compensate? With your strengths. That's the idea. This is the idea. That there's more heat to be had together than apart. And the fourth and final benefit that, we, that Solomon says is protection. Protection. He says, if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. There is protection among loving friends. That when... A friend sees you stray into spiritually dangerous territory, they can be there to call you back. That when you're discouraged and confused, they can help you to stand. They can put an arm around you. They can be the one to give you strength. Like Aaron and Hur in Exodus chapter 17 verse 12, who held up the tired hands of Moses while the battle was raging below them until the setting of the sun, so too we all need friends from time to time to hold up our weary hands to help protect us. Do the will of the Lord. To warn us against the danger of the way that we're going. To call us back from the brink. To tell us that we've drifted. To help us get back on track. To protect us from the temptations of Satan. To pray with us. To pray through things with us. To lift up our weary hands. To strengthen our weary knees. But take special note of the final phrase in verse 12. Final phrase in verse 12. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Not just a twofold is mentioned here, but a threefold. And indeed, whether it be marriage, whether it be a business relationship, whether it be a friendship, whether it be a church body, the kinds of relationship which see these blessings of true fellowship, accountability, mutual strength, and protection are the relationships that are built on God. Two friends in fellowship with one another and both of those friends in fellowship with God. A threefold cord. A cord woven between you, your friend, and the Lord. As the anchor to you both. Now, again, I mentioned before that this is oftentimes talked of in marriage. And indeed, in marriage, you should seek to find a spouse who loves God better than they could ever love you. If their loyalty is to God, then they will love you. Because they've chosen to. If their loyalty is just to you, well, that's going to ebb and flow. But if, if, if God is their foundation, if God is the foundation of both of them as individuals, then when they're brought together, God becomes that third cord. And there's strength in that marriage. But it's not just marriage. Friendships. Close friendships. Business. Uh, close business relationships. All of these... And certainly a church body, right? All of these benefit from this threefold cord idea. Two individuals and God is the third. 
And as we braid God into our relationships, our friendships, we have confidence in knowing that from those friendships and relationships can come fellowship, accountability, strength, and protection, spiritually speaking. And indeed, this is why the Bible warns us in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 and 15, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This is not just a marriage verse, by the way. This is not just a marriage verse. For what fellowship hath the righteous... Hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? In any context, you yoke yourself together with an unbeliever, or you yoke yourself together with darkness, you seek to interplay yourself with sinful things. Look, it just doesn't work. Someone's going to have to give. And unfortunately, oftentimes what gives is the righteous. The righteous are often the ones that give. As believers, we have no business getting into deep and invested relationships with unbelievers. It's dangerous. So it is that to whatever degree our relationships can bear the unity of this threefold cord idea, two earthly players and the divine third, there will be abundant strength. And this leads us to our third and final point. Man can find lasting satisfaction. Don't forget it. I won't let you. There is lasting satisfaction to be found, but it's not in stuff, and it's not in labor, and it's not in, 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 in people, and it's not in a marriage, and it's not in money, and it's not in clothing, and it's not in religious dogma. It's not in your church. It's not in your pastor. It's not in being a mom or a dad or an aunt or an uncle or a brother or a sister. Lasting satisfaction is found in Christ. 1 John 4. We follow Christ and we read, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the covering for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, We ought also to love one another. Where's the lasting satisfaction found? The lasting satisfaction is found when you have so much love for God that you will then pour out your love for others as God has loved you so you will love them so that your priority is not on stuff. Your priority is not on things. Your priority is not on labor except to the degree that you are pouring yourself into the lives of others. Be that unbelievers unto salvation or be it with believers unto fellowship, unto accountability, unto mutual strength, and unto protection. That is where lasting satisfaction is found. Solomon looked and he saw a very lonely man, a man who was pouring himself into his labors, but he had no one upon which to bestow the rewards. Let us not be like that man. Let us not give the better part away for that which does not matter. Let us seek proper priorities. Yes, labor, working with your hands that which is good, that you may live and that you may give. Yes, do those things, but not at the expense of that which truly matters. Let's build godly relationships. Let's have those threefold cords. Let's seek for those among whom we can be built up and edified in the Lord. And let's pursue that fellowship. Don't forsake it. Let's pray.